Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperice.com. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. And now here's your host, Patrick Beeman. So welcome to our addiction series, Addiction 101 for Medical Students. I'm Patrick Beeman, the usual host here, joined by Dr. Alona Balasanova, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Uh, you went to med school at Harvard, finished in 2012, and then trained in psych at Boston University. And you have been invited on this uh, uh, program and, and graciously offered to give us some of your time uh, to talk about the language of addiction. Thank you, uh, number one. And I also would like to mention that you are uh, recently the uh, recipient of the AMA's Leadership Award for, sorry, AMA Foundation's uh, Leadership Award for Health Education. You're an award-winning health educator. <laughs> you teach medical students and you teach residents um, uh, how to address addiction. Uh, I think that would be fair to say, correct? Absolutely. All right. Well, like uh, we were discussing beforehand, uh, before we started this official recording portion, um, we usually start with a kind of multiple choice practice question. So why don't we just dive into that and then uh, we can learn a little bit more about uh, who you are and what your passion is uh, related to the field. Sure, let's do it. All right, so we've got one here. Uh, this is thanks to Sat Pearls. Uh, a 28-year-old female presents for chronic recurring shortness of breath over the past five years. She has a 10-pack year history of smoking and a recent chest x-ray that showed a solitary pulmonary nodule. She says, I know smoking's not ideal. I've seen those videos on the internet where they compare a lung from a healthy person to one of a chronic smoker's. I don't want to have a smoker's lung. What is an appropriate response to the patient? So 
Our answer choices here are, quote, We don't know if you're going to have unhealthy lungs. We're going to admit you for a biopsy now. Choice B, you should focus your efforts on trying to quit rather than looking up videos on the internet. Choice C, why don't we do the lung biopsy first and go from there? Choice D, you seem concerned about the possible long-term effects of smoking. All right, so how, and I'm sure this can apply to more than just smoking, but uh, how would you break down this question and what answer would you say is correct? Well, I think, first of all, we have to look at our patient, right? You always look at the patient in front of you. You have a relatively young woman coming to you with something that is potentially very serious. And so she's coming to you with concern, right? And so she doesn't want to have smokers long, whatever that may be to her. And so she is worried, right? But she's also continuing in the behavior that is probably causing this problem. And so how, how do we assess that? How do we talk to her in a way that she's going to understand and how she is going to want to respond to us? How do we show her that we care and are also concerned about her? And so the way to do that would be to use her own incentive, use her own motivation. So answer choice four, you seem concerned about the possible long-term effects of smoking is the correct choice here because it uses the patient's own concerns that she is bringing to you um, rather than putting your concerns and goals onto the patient. And so that really is able to open up a conversation with the patient to really hear about, well, what are your concerns? You know, what are the downsides to smoking? Um, what are the positives? And, you know, do they really outweigh these down, downsides that you have pointed out? Right. And so have the patient do her own convincing rather than you trying to convince her. And there's kind of a, a term for that framework, uh, correct? Correct. So that's what we call motivational interviewing or colloquially MI. And so MI really focuses on bringing out the patient's own motivations, their own interests, their own ambivalence. Um, and it really centers on this notion that we're ambivalent about everything all the time. Right. Every decision that we make, you know, do I want to hit the snooze button or do I want to get up out of bed? Right. For another five minutes, I just want to lay here. So every day we have a lot of decisions that we're ambivalent about and patients who use substances are no different. Um, there's still decisions to be made of whether you want to seek help, whether or not you accept the help that you're given. And so really playing off of that is what tends to work the best. Yeah. All right. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, you know, um, what I've noticed is going through a lot of the um, board style practice questions in um, kind of the field of addiction, substance use, all this kind of thing. Um, a lot of them deal with what a lot of students find challenging or, or how do I respond to patients? And Studying for that can be difficult because, uh, you know, it's almost mechanical uh, when they're written down into answer choices like you should say, quote this. Um, but it, it does go to a point and a principle, I think, as you explained it, that you want to do that ever important thing, which is reflect back the patient's own language, like not to impose a, a 
framework or a point of departure that you have as a doctor with uh, at least four years and one day of training um, or a medical student who spent two years learning about all this stuff, you know, patients don't have that. We have to remember always that this is an unequal relationship and we profess to be healers and we have to be conscious of our own um, frankly, a, a power differential, which should, you know, cause us, I think, to be humble um, and to be on point when it comes to reflecting back patients' own language and approaching things. I guess it's it's empathy, is it? I mean, that's uh, uh, one way of putting it, I guess, to, to be an empathetic practitioner of the art. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, you know, we could break down, you know, why uh, answer choice A, we don't know if you're going to have unhealthy lungs. We're going to admit you for a biopsy now. Um, B was you should focus your efforts on trying to quit rather than looking up videos on the internet. And then why don't we do the lung biopsy first and go from there? I would say A is not ideal because it's just like straight up dismissive. Yeah, like... Uh, the patient, like you said, we have to know her. She's saying, I got information from the internet. I'm concerned about this. And then you're, you'd be saying in choice A, well, I don't have time to talk to you uh, about this in depth. We don't know. So we'll just do the biopsy. I feel like that's dismissive. Well, and actually more alarming right. <laughs> is that you just brought up the idea of biopsy when that was not at all something that she brought. I mean, she came in because she is short of breath, right? And so here you are throwing around like a really scary word, like biopsy, where which is invasive and, you know, procedural, potentially surgical. And so, you know, you're saying you're going to go ahead and do this. You're going to admit her for a biopsy. I mean, how paternalistic is that? Right. And the patient, you, you, there's no informed consent. There's no discussion or conversation about what happens next after a pulmonary nodule is identified on an x-ray, right? There's no anticipatory guidance for the patient. I mean, there's just all sorts of things wrong with that approach. Absolutely. And that's an excellent point because, yeah, we're just skipping over um, all of her concerns and being like, this is what she wants. But And that might be the uh, most appropriate next step in management as far as the biomedical or biological good of the patient goes. But, I mean, she might not want to have a biopsy now, um, and we should be maximizing her ability to be a human person and make choices herself. Uh, the good is a person in the framework of my mentor, Ed Bellagrino, and uh, just imposing like, hey, here you go. You're, uh, you're going to get a biopsy now. Let's go. Um, that, uh, that just doesn't work nowadays, um, and it shouldn't ever have. I think there's, yeah, I, just, I was just going to say, I think there's just always going to be somewhat of a dichotomy of how medical education is administered because we learn about diseases and we learn about what to do for those diseases, right? But what about the patient who has the disease? Do we, do we learn about that? Because we don't do a great job educating the future leaders in healthcare on how to approach a whole person. Yeah, amen to that. That is so true. Uh, I, a good example I've always thought is the term acute uh, renal failure, acute kidney failure, kidney failure. like. Think about that. 
if you heard that without any medical knowledge or training, you might be like, oh, sh shit. Uh -huh. Kidneys are, I mean, that sounds terrible. My kidneys are, I have kidney failure. My kidneys are no longer going to work. I have a friend who, you know, is on dialysis. Is that what I'm, you know, but like, it could be as simple as that person significantly dehydrated and we're, you know, applying <laughs> this uh, terminology uh, colloquially. And, and if you don't explain that, man, that can freak people out. Um, and probably why terminology is now more acute kidney injury. But but still, there are tons of examples like that in medicine. Just be mindful. Mm -hmm. What about uh, you should focus your efforts on trying to quit rather than looking up videos on the internet to... Uh, too directive, too uh, uh, paternalistic, strong paternalism. Well, it's paternalistic and it's, it's also putting our goals onto the patient, right? I mean, we're telling her you need to quit, right? Who are we to tell her what to do? Like, I'm not her mother, right? And so we're, <laughs> we're the doctors. So we're there to form an alliance with this woman, with this patient. We're, we're there to be on the same page. And she hasn't said she wants to quit. So why are we telling her to? Why are we saying that's where she needs to focus her efforts? She's coming to you because she's concerned about her breathing and about this pulmonary nodule, right? She hasn't connected the dots yet. And so that's our job is to help her connect those dots. And then if she decides to quit as a result of that, fantastic. And if she doesn't, we should be there to support her anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And then finally, to leave this uh, portion why don't we do the lung biopsy first and go from there? What's wrong with that? Well, again, we're, we're, we're talking about a lung biopsy, right? This very scary invasive procedure where... Yeah, I think that one grabs it. <laughs> right? I mean, that, that, might, that might be the worst, actually. What lung biopsy? What are you talking about? What's that involved? <laughs> you know? Right? What's a biopsy? Are you taking my lungs out? Oh, that's excellent. Exactly, yeah. All right. Let's talk about broadly then... Uh, I guess, talking. <laughs> um, the language of addiction, I think, uh, probably goes even um, is as a, a good uh, specific uh, example or an instantiation of um, probably just language and semiotics in, in general. But um, why, why are you so interested in how we talk? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And so for me, I mean, words have a lot of power. Uh, English is not my first language. And so I actually learned English when I was seven years old, when I moved to this country. And words have a lot of power and meaning, right? Using the same words as somebody else, being able to understand one another, being able to form an alliance with somebody by virtue of being understood, right? That's a big deal. And I think sometimes we take that for granted. And we just throw words around that we hear or that have become ingrained in society when those words are hurtful, right? And they're, they're hurtful, not just in terms of somebody's feelings, they're hurtful because they actually impact the medical care that we give our patients, right? In a very systematic way. When we talk about structural racism and social determinants of health and a variety of other factors that impact patients who use substances, language is at the top of the list. And the way that we talk about patients is the way that we treat them. Yes, absolutely. I think that 
One thing I've learned more than anything else the past um, almost a year I've been uh, doing an outpatient clinic treating opiate use disorders is how prevalent it is for patients to be treated like shit. And it's honestly not that hard to do. If you have somebody who's uh, dealing with you know, an opiate use disorder, how you talk to them, it, it could change their perception of doctors, of healthcare, of people. Like you have the capacity to do that. And I, I think it's, it's, it's good to be conscious of that. And actually, I, I, I've been trying to do a little bit more social media lately, um, although I probably shouldn't just because it's, uh, it's a trap. But I saw someone on, on Twitter, um, uh, at Medical Axioms, uh, just popped up and it, it was like, if you want to make a connection with a young person dying of addiction, try these words. I think you are a good person with a bad disease. Man, what if everybody approached the healing art like that it, it would impact care in a good way so ho hopefully this podcast we're encouraging you to do that but but why do you think language um why why do we use or continue to use stigmatizing language Taste the Mediterranean through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. Save on animal welfare certified bone-in beef short ribs, sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, and more. Find sales on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie and ground lamb. Grab an olive boule bread from the bakery. Plus, wines from the Mediterranean start at just $8.99. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Must be 21+. plus. Please drink responsibly. Well, I think with regard to addiction in particular, only in the past 20 years has the medical field, and I don't even want to say embraced, recognized addiction as a medical problem, because it's still not embraced as a medical problem, although it is now recognized as such. And so historically, we really separated it out into being a societal problem. I mean, even now when you're learning to do an HNP, the substance use is always under social history which is completely bogus, right? Because it's, you're, you're putting in a biological substance into your body that is having a biological effect, right? Why is that under social history? No one really knows um, why it's still in there, but historically it used to be in there because we thought it was bad people, people who didn't have, you know, strong character, who were, you know, had failed morals and uh, weak-willed, right? Individuals who just couldn't get it together. And so those were the ones that, you know, were deemed alcoholics, quote unquote, or addicts or junkies, or, you know, pick your sort of stigmatizing term. But that, that is how society began to view individuals who use substances. And unfortunately, that pervasive image has been perpetuated, not only by, you know, movies and television, but by the medical education system and by healthcare systems that continue to not appropriately address addiction with the same fortitude as other conditions. And so the words that we use like substance abuse, substance use disorder, which is actually the correct term as opposed to substance abuse, um, those words really matter. They've done studies, actually many studies that show that when providers, you know, physicians and uh, you know, other providers alike, when they're using those words, the stigmatizing words, they tend to provide a poorer level of care to the patient completely unconsciously, right? Nobody's actively trying to do harm or trying to do a bad job, right? 
but you are, you're human. And so you have unconscious biases. We all do. And most people have ingrained these biases against folks that they consider substance abusers or drug abusers or those who abuse anything, frankly, um, which, you know, is a whole separate issue of using criminality and criminal language in for something that is medical. Uh, but, but I think it, the point stands that it's really more than just being politically correct. Um, but it's about making sure we're providing safe and quality care for our patients. And unfortunately, if we're not using the right language, the data shows that we're just not doing that. Do you think that there are, well, nothing's perfect. So I'll ask it like this. As we're trying to reform the lexicon, what areas of the current terminology kind of, uh, I don't want to say, well, I guess, yeah, kind of like approved terminology, appropriate terminology is agreed upon by, um, you know, people in the field. Where are there still problems or what are the challenges in that current language um, and how to overcome them? And I guess, I guess what I'm really asking is substance use disorder is, is uh, not what patients usually um use that sort of terminology uh and and like how how would you approach that because a lot of them say look i'm just a junkie and you're like you're not just anything but but like people get down on themselves and will use that sort of language how how can we address that how ought we to address that i don't know just reflections on on that whole topic patients using the language that we're trying to change there yeah, the great question, patients using the language we're trying to change. I think there's two sides to that coin. One is if a patient has really chosen to self-identify with a particular label, for example, many people who attend AA or Alcoholics Anonymous truly find empowerment through identifying themselves as an alcoholic, as a part of their identity, an alcoholic in recovery. And so to take that away from them would actually be deleterious. And so if that is what the patient wishes to call themselves, by all means, right, patients can self-identify however they wish. But as their medical professionals, as their doctors, we can't use that vernacular, right? Just like other stigmatized and minority groups have reclaimed stigmatizing language in order to gain power and mastery over that historical stigma and oppression, it's the same thing with substance use. And so if an individual finds meaning and power in that, you know, I respect that completely. I won't use that terminology because again, my job is to use clinical language, right? Why would I use colloquialisms when, you know, I'm a physician and I know what, I, what is actually supposed to be said. So that, that would say that's one side of the coin, right? The other side of the coin is when you do have a patient in front of you, like the example you gave that says, hey, I'm just a junkie, right? And so I would explore that. Well, what, what do you mean? What does, that, what does that mean you're just a junkie, right? What is it that they mean to say by that? Because that might open up a whole can of worms about how they feel about their life gains, their losses, how they feel about themselves, what this idea of being a quote junkie means to them. And I, I would explore that language with them and then later tell them that, you know, I'm never going to call you a junkie because to me, you are so-and-so, right? Whatever their name is. And, and that is who you are, the person. And yes, you may have this disease of a substance use disorder, but that doesn't define you, right? It doesn't define who you are. 
And so I think that's important for us to to keep perspective on. Absolutely. And and I really think it is it's so helpful to really get into the mindset of reality. And that is that, you know, addiction is a it's a chronic disease. And it's like other chronic diseases, it can get better, it can get worse. People can take their insulin appropriately and avoid Dairy Queen, or they can, um, you know, uh, stop, have too much sugar, um, and then ignore uh, what they need to have replaced back in their bodies if they're a diabetic. And, and in a lot of ways, that I, I think is a good an analogy to help patients understand that whole like, well, diabetes is a chronic disease, you know, someone who has that, yes. Well, addiction's like that too. I guess uh, it seems to me that some of the most burnt out people, physicians, are the ones who use stigmatizing language the most. Mm-hmm. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, that I'm so glad you brought that up because it makes perfect sense. And I would argue that it is using that language that is actually leading to them being burnt out. And I will explain what I mean. Well, C.S. Lewis says, mortals have a tendency to become what they're pretending to be. Um, and if you're, you know, what, however you act, um, you become that thing. It's kind of like an existentialist idea too, but go ahead. Exactly. Well, you know, so use of stigmatizing terminology has been linked with reduced empathy for your patient, right? I mean, if you view them as a criminal, you're going to have less empathy for them, whether that's conscious or unconscious. So reduced empathy in turn is a huge component of burnout, right? I mean, it's one of the three pillars of burnout. And so the more that you use stigmatizing language, the more burnt out you're going to be because you're going to view these individuals in a very negative light. You're going to view what you do with them negatively. You'll have a reduced sense of empathy and increased burnout. So it's really a vicious cycle. If you change your language, I might argue that burnout might go down somewhat. How can you avoid those feelings that would, uh, I guess, make one reflexively want to dismiss an addict or a junkie or the person who's just trying to get high? You know, the what 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 do you think um, uh, can can help achieve a stronger resilience against um, those temptations for some people? Because I feel like some people kind of think it's like a personal attack. Uh, uh, if if a patient comes in and they're quote a drug seeker and you know <laughs> I I don't know it's just so crazy to me every time I say that now as a because I know it's a, a concept a heuristic people use like in an ED uh, you know people are drug they have drug seeking behavior which I guess in a very descriptive technical sense sure but often they're just like trying not to feel sick, especially when it comes to, you know, opiates, especially, but. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Well, and so this is actually a large part of what I do with medical students, residents and fellows is we actually go through and and we take a self inventory of what you feel when you're interacting with certain patients. Right. And why is it you feel that? I think the most important thing here is to check yourself. Are you saying that like the concepts of transference and countertransference for those of us who aren't psychiatry, those are still like legit things to think about 
Those are totally legit things to think about. Absolutely. Like my bread and butter as a psychiatrist, right? So transferring right. <laughs> what you feel or rather what the what the patient feels about you and countertransference is what you feel about the patient. And so how do you address negative um, countertransference? Well, so here's the thing, right? Nobody is telling you to change how you feel because that's that's your feelings are valid, right? And so who am I to tell you? If you genuinely dislike people who use substances, that's fine, right? What would not be fine is if you let those personal feelings change your clinical behavior as a physician, right? And so that's what's not fine. And so that is the, the line that I teach my students that whatever you feel is completely valid. What's not valid is if you allow that feeling to interfere with providing care, right? And so I think it's that fight against the feeling that typically happens when somebody does genuinely have a negative countertransference, but is fighting that because they feel like, oh no, I'm a doctor. I should feel, you know, I shouldn't think this way. And then ultimately, you know, they end up either burnt out or, you know, upset or, you know, something happens, but, but it's that fighting against the reality of what you feel that oftentimes gets people in trouble. If you just acknowledge Patients who are in opiate withdrawal make me uncomfortable. I don't like them. I feel helpless, right? If you acknowledge those feelings, then you're not going to have as much disdain for the patient. I know that uh, uh, you know, your, your time is limited, but um, what are the most important things that you would want medical students to know about the language of addiction as they move through um, their years of practice and, and education? I think the biggest thing is erase the term abuse from your vernacular. Just erase it from your brain. Substance abuse, alcohol abuse, you know, drug abuser. That term abuse is so incredibly pejorative and clinically meaningless. And all it does is stigmatize and cause harm, right? And we often go to that term because it's just what pops up in our head because it's just been ingrained in us, right? And it is okay and in fact, it is more than okay for you to use the correct language, even if your superiors, your interns, your residents, your faculty, even if they're not using the correct language, right? It's okay for you to use the correct language. You don't have to try to fit in by doing the wrong thing, right? And so that's that hidden curriculum they talk about, right? But no one's going to fault you for using correct language. Well, is that true? Because <laughs> that would be my follow-up question is, what, what is the role of a, a, some, a learner just in general? Um, if you have an attending or, or a resident who is using not just maybe stigmatizing language in a sort of benign way, which has its own problems, but there's probably another, a greater sin is when people are, are, are being pejorative, disdainful. Um, should you address that as a student in any way? And if so, how? Yeah, I mean... Like I said, you, nobody's going to fault you for using the correct language. Whether or not you should be correcting your superiors, I think, is a different story. And I think, you know, it's important to be aware of the hierarchy. Of course, there is one, right? But there's also just a hierarchy of respect, right? You wouldn't want to be embarrassed in front of your colleagues or in front of individuals you are supposed to be leading, and so I certainly wouldn't advise correcting, you know, your attending position right in front of the whole team. I would not advise that whatsoever. Um, I think, you know, speaking with perhaps your resident or your intern one-on-one -on -one at a later time and maybe expressing, hey, 
you know, this was said and it made me uncomfortable um, because, you know, I, I know that's not the correct term to use, you know, what, what do you think I should do? And I think really bouncing those ideas off of other team members that are perhaps closer in stature to you would be beneficial, but I certainly wouldn't advise uh, going and, you know, correcting your attending in front of the, the whole team. <laughs> I still think it's a problem. So I would say this for all of you listening, you'll eventually be in attending. So be okay with being corrected adult to adult, in in my opinion, um, so that we can change the culture, you know? Yes, well, adult to adult. Uh, obviously, I was in the military, so um, a fine line in how to uh, address when you have an issue with a superior, you know? Uh, but just remember, your students need, your the people training under you need to be able to come to you and call you out on shit. Like, I, I just think that's normal. But I also think at least half of the, a lot of physicians out there would not take kindly to that. And it would probably ruin uh, the rest of your experience on a rotation and ultimately not change anything. But that was just commentary. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. Give us then, before you go, some common um, stigmatizing terms and their alternatives, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So substance abuse, that is the incorrect term. What should replace that is either simply substance use, right? Somebody is using substances or substance misuse, right? Somebody is using substances in a way not intended. So somebody is taking a prescription medication, not in a way that it was prescribed or if it's not prescribed to them, right? They are misusing that medicine. Um, you know, I think clean and dirty, right? People say, oh, I've been clean for, you know, he's been clean for eight years. What does that mean exactly? You know, he showered every day. Like it, it just, it really makes no sense clinically. And so the correct term might be he's been in recovery for eight years or he's been sober for eight years. Likewise, with any kind of drug testing or urine drug screening, right? It's not dirty. You don't have a dirty urine because again, that doesn't make any sense, right? But your urine may be positive for- Unless you have a UTI. Right, unless you have a UTI, <laughs> right? <laughs> so but but you, you know, your urine is, even then, even when you have a UTI, right? Your urine is positive for proteins and nitrites and right. glucose and whatever else it may be, right? And so your urine is positive for the substances, you know, for methamphetamines or, or it's negative for methamphetamines or whatever it may be. But we need to use the same clinical language that we use for all of our other chronic conditions, right? This is really just no different. And so I would say those are the biggest ones, the clean and dirty substance abuse, you know, obviously addict, alcoholic are ridiculous. They're not patient first. They're labeling. I feel like those go without say, right? You should call them a person. <laughs> so that would be the alternative, right? A person or a patient uh, with a substance use disorder. Well, um, if we can get 10% of uh, students to change their language around these uh, couple things that you mentioned, uh, who knows how addiction and substance use disorders uh, more specifically will be viewed in our profession and handled and treated by those who those of us who practice the art of medicine in the next decade so um, just you know make those changes let's see what happens dr balasanova thank you so much and um, we'll be excited to uh, continue to watch your work i will definitely on twitter so keep 
posting things and I will uh, share it uh, whenever uh, something comes up. So again, thank you. Yes, you can find, thank you. You can find me on Twitter, Dr. Psych MD. Dr. Psych MD. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right, and we'll put it pretty easy. Yeah, and we'll uh, actually that's a pretty sweet uh, Twitter handle. <laughs> I, I know. I was I was impressed it wasn't taken. So yeah, I know. I am too. I recently joined Clubhouse. Uh, do, you, do you know about this one? Uh, it's like a new social media platform that's like audio rooms. It's actually really useful, um, surprisingly, but um, I, I saw somebody who had just at psychiatrist and I was like, oh, that's a pretty good one. Oh, wow. That is really nice. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you again for your time and uh, good luck on all your professional endeavors and your advocacy for uh, patients suffering from addiction. Thank you.